This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the red box podcast i'm matt chorley and i'm sorry no, I'm not really. And nor is Nadim Zahawi. Turns out he's just sorry about the papers being rude about him and the fact his family had to read it. So today we take a look at the art of the political apology. It's really fun uh, conversation uh, coming up with uh, with a US author who's looked into all this and uh, the Times' very own Matthew Paris. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, as ever, we kick off with the columnist panel. The columnists with Libby Rachie, Libby Purvis, and Rachel Sylvester on Times Radio. Yes, that's how the morning speaks to our two favourite columnists on a Monday morning. And we are joined by Libby Powers. Morning, Libby. Good morning. And in the studio, Rachel Vester. Morning, Rachel. Morning, Matt. Now, Rachel, it's delighted you're here but as the head of the Times Health Commission, because it's all about health in the headlines today. In fact, Rishi, it's all Rishi Sinat wants to talk about, amazingly. Uh, he's just been talking in the last uh, couple of minutes, actually, setting out his five-point plan for the NHS. So Not another the, one. I know, which is different <laughs> to the five-point plan for the country. So sort of sub-five points. Anyway, let's take a listen to what Richard had to say. The first is more capacity. That means 5,000 more beds, 800 more ambulances, 100 more mental health ambulances. The second thing is to increase the workforce. The third thing was discharge. I mentioned we've got 14,000 people in hospitals at the moment who ought to be either back home or in their communities. The fourth thing is having more people cared outside of hospital. And there are some great examples where we can treat people with respiratory conditions in virtual wards or indeed new frailty and fall services, again, keeping people out of hospital. Uh, And lastly, we're going to improve 111 so people can get the help that they need on the phone. So is that list of five things the right thing to do, Rachel? It sounds completely sensible and the right thing to do, but I would question exactly how. So, you know, all these extra beds and ambulances are needed, but how are you going to staff them? Uh, Already 130,000 vacancies in the NHS. Um, And, you know, just saying we need more workforce, I'm not sure quite how when you've got, you know, it takes six years to train a doctor. Um, I spent two days in Addenbrooke's hospital last week, which was absolutely fascinating. And you just do realise how it is a whole ecosystem. So, you know, I was standing in the ops meeting for the emergency department and they have on the the wall the flashing, the ambulances coming in, the number of beds, and it was sort of 10 ambulances incoming 
only three beds. What do we do? Where do we move? How can we move people on? Who do we move out of hospital into social care? Then by four o'clock, they're trying to get people out to social care, but the transport hasn't turned up. So they can't even get them to the care home. The cutoff point for the care home is four o'clock. So the whole thing as Rishi Sunak seems to recognise in his five-point plan, is an ecosystem, but without actually dealing with each element properly, you're never going to fix the whole thing. And it feels like he's sort of trying to come up with a, a plan for the winter crisis in the hospitals without really dealing with social care. He's kicked, you know, the whole reform of social care into the long grass until after the next general election. And we've talked about this a lot, but that's essentially the problem. There are 800 new ambulances... It's not a shortage of ambulances. It's an inability to get people out of ambulances. And the reason they can't get out of ambulances into the hospitals is because the hospital's beds are full. And the reason the beds are full is because they can't leave the hospital to go into social care. Exactly. So Stuart Rose, who is one of our commissioners, the head of ASDA, former head of MS, he says it's like a supermarket. It's got to be goods in, goods out. You don't want them hanging about on the shelves. I mean, it's slightly... He doesn't put it like that. That's my thing. But if you've got... Um, you know, if you've got people stuck in hospital who should be able to go home, the system's never going to function properly. You can't then get the people in at the beginning if you can't get them out at the end, exactly as you say. Libby, what do you make of this? Because clearly Rishi Sunak's decided that, that lots of shopping lists that presumably he can tick off come the time of the next election is his route back uh, when... Um, in fact, I'm just looking now, there's now footage... See, this is very confusing, this. They're now showing... He's now sta he's standing in front of his New Year list of five, uh, of which number four was cut waiting list, and then I think this new list of five for the NHS is part of part of that. But clearly, clearly he, he, he's a man who thinks a, a, a sort of a, a list of things to tick off is, is the key, Libby. Do you think it'll work? Um, it, it, yes, I think I, I think it's, it's a good attempt. I'm very interested. I mean, the politics I sort of leave to you. Uh, but the um, uh, I, I was interested in what Rachel was saying about the business of, of you know people in people out. Because when I was in doing a week at a time on on the chemotherapy, uh, there was one day when I knew that my my drips were all finished by four o'clock, right? And I could have gone home and I needed to go home. I wanted to go home that night anyway. But it would depend on whether pharmacy could get me my going home drugs in time. And in fact, some of these people who are not discharged, it's not a matter of social care. The figures show that in fact, apparently, quite a lot of them, it is just sort of the admin of getting them back out again. Mm. And in this particular case, Mario, the brilliant pharmacist, said, yeah, OK, I'll do yours. And he, he, he rushed off and he did it, you know, because it was a small unit and a small hospital and everybody knew that it would be great if I could be turfed out of my bed now and sit sit around you know in the waiting area until my drugs came and then somebody else could be admitted to that bed but it's a matter of of you know of trying to make the all the systems really crunchy like a supermarket you know stuff in stuff out and also um, all and I the think bits that's the point it seems that all the bits of the system don't really connect up properly it needs to be all much more integrated you know so mm. that the each bit of the system can, you know, the, the doctors ought to be able to say to the pharmacist, Libby's going home on this day, we're going to need the prescription at precisely this time. It's a small it, hospital, and that's how that worked, you see. But you can imagine, you know, firm that up to an enormous hospital. That's a very different game. You have to have the systems really tied in. In fact, what you need probably, Libby, is more managers. That actually man management has become a bad word in the NHS. 
But actually, oh, self, no, no, but self-management as well. You know, different bits of the hospital talking to each other, yeah. all the IT working between all those different bits. You know, that's that's what does it. You don't necessarily need to bring in, you know, some jobs worth with a clipboard. You know, it, it's it's how it works among the actual people on the front line that matters. I actually thought the managers at Abenbrooks were absolute heroes and doing an incredibly important job at, at the logistics. So I was chatting to the the consultant, the doctor, who's the head of the emergency department, she was saying, you know, she's obviously under huge pressure, saving lives, actually, you know, really helping patients. Mm. But she also said a huge part of her job is logistics, um, getting the beds for, you know, where they're going to go on to. And that is what the managers should be doing and are doing um, as well. But they should be and are relieving pressure on the medics yeah. who can then get on with the actual health care. I suppose the whole point is you, could, you spend years training as a, as a doctor in the, how to treat people. Mm. The management of logistics and uh, um, processing, you know, that's a complete, that's a complete different set of do. skills. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Well, well, we will see how Rishi Sinat gets on ticking off his... Uh, ticking off his list, um, uh, his sub-list of his list. <laughs> and I assume over the coming weeks we're probably going to get five-point plans for each of the other five points. Really. <laughs> uh, we'll see about that. Um, Libby, let's, uh, uh, let's talk about your column today, because we talked a bit about pensions on the show last week. There was a campaign launched to try and get the terminally ill to be able to draw down their uh, state pension early. And you've, actually, you, you've written about the idea of actually maybe everyone should be able to do it, or maybe a half-pension. And it being more flexible, because we're all living longer. Some people can work longer, but not everyone. Um, and actually, this just, just, if in doubt, crank the age of retirement up is a bit of a blunt, blunt tool. Yes, I was getting a bit sort of fed up with all these um, uh, keyboard people, screen and keyboard people like you and me, sort of saying, oh, well, I don't see why I shouldn't go on working until 75. And oh, yes, yes, you know, David Attenborough, Mary Berry, Ken Dodd, all the rest of it, we can go on. But when you look at manual work and physically taxing work, you know, the sort of standing jobs, the, the labouring jobs, the mechanical jobs where maybe you're, you're, you know, your, your reflexes are not going to be as fast uh, as they were, I think we need a variable pension age and I think we may need some kind of half pension um, arrangement as well so that people who can carry on doing part-time work and this involves a lot of things but it also involves the taxation system being absolutely simplified you know I mean I you, you mentioned somebody with terminal illness I knew a chap who, who was um, in his last months he knew he was but he could still do odd interesting jobs in his field his art field every time the effect and the problem with his you know this his welfare his invalidity benefit and and, and the work just made it not worth working it was too complex and I think in the age of the computer we've really got to start thinking very very cleverly about all these things and simplifying things and making smaller amounts of work possible for people for a much longer age and um, you know generally the whole the whole pension thing is just a, a blunt instrument at the moment they say oh you know 66 67 shortly going up to 70 you know some people say it should go up higher you know some people at desks say oh we can work till we're 90 you know well, of course you can it's comfy you're indoors you know <laughs> yeah so I, I just I just think it needs a big rethink you know I'm not the person to to do that, but I'd like to see somebody doing it. It's an interesting debate, though, isn't it, Rachel? And particularly at a time when the government started to get the early retirees back to work, but currently with a message of, like, the country needs you. And if you're retired comfortably, well, why would you... They need a better excuse than, you know... It'd be good for us if you came back to work. Yeah, I think it, I, I really like Libby's idea of the half pension. You want a sort of transitional period from full-on 
to not working. It's very hard psychologically and economically to do that. So I think the half pensions is a great idea. But as Libby points out, that also involves then changing things like the fact that pensioners don't pay any national insurance, pensioners get the free winter yeah. fuel allowance. I think there needs to be a bit of quid pro quo. You can't just say more you know, money for pensioners or people over 65. It has to be that there's more contribution as well for those who can. And then greater flexibility, as Libby says. And then maybe also there needs to be something to encourage people to save for their social care, whether that's through the pension or separate thing, so that if you could have a kind of properly reformed funding system for social care, then we'd relieve some of these pressures we're seeing on the NHS. Um, uh, and I suppose it, the part of the problem is that they've got huge numbers of people and if you could sit down with each one of them and go, well, actually, you could, probably could do a couple of days or you could do a day here and actually maybe not on the building site, but you could maybe do some, you know, admit or whatever, that's fine. But it's very difficult for the government to start doing that, isn't it? Well, except that surely technology enables all yeah. of this because it's ultimately flexible uh, and you, it can make it much easier, in fact. I think it, the system is sort of built around the idea that everything is on paper. Uh, and I think now, in fact, we have got the tools to uh, give people much more power over their futures. Oh, well, talking of uh, taking on uh, new work in, in, later in life, um, there's some breaking news in on William Hague and the suggestion that he was going to become Tory party chairman. Well, he isn't. He seems to have told Oliver Wright from The Times, uh, under no circumstances <laughs> uh, would he do that. Because obviously uh, Rishi Sunak replaced him uh, as the MP for Richmond. They're very close. William Hague spoke at the away day last week. Uh, lots of speculation that he was going to replace Nadim Zahawi as party chairman. And, uh, yeah, under no circumstances is he willing to do that. So there we are. Another ringing endorsement. We are still joined by Libby Purse and Rachel Sylvester. We're just talking about older workers and maybe more needs to be done to keep them in the workforce. But Paul Johnson from the Institute of Fiscal Studies writes in the Times today about younger workers and how the next few years risk giving us a very unlucky generation of workers. Um, Paul, explain what normally happens. It's basically if you if you enter the workforce when the times are good and the times are bad, that sort of sets the trend for the rest of your career. Yeah, it does for a surprisingly long time. So people who finish school or university uh, in recessions um, in the early 1980s or in 2008, 2009, not only did they find it difficult to get work initially, you could still see five and sometimes even 10 years later that they were doing less well than people just one or two years after them or one or two years before them. Uh, in terms of when they entered the labour market, because you lose once you lose that bit of experience up front, maybe you find it difficult to get work. Maybe you find it difficult to get work that meet meets your skills, and you get stuck a, a bit. Um, and so you can be lucky, you can be unlucky in terms of when you join the labour market. What we saw in COVID was really worrying because in 20, um, September October 2020 had a collapse in the number of young people leaving school and university who could find work at all. And you actually found much higher levels of furlough and much higher levels of unemployment among people in their early 20s. So I, for one, was really worried at that stage. What we found since, actually, is that those guys um, have done done OK. And they're, uh, they're back in work in just as big a numbers as you'd have expected irrespective of when they joined um, the labour market. And they're in the same kinds of jobs as you would previously expected. Now, that, of course, is to do with the fact we've got vast numbers of vacancies at the moment. So whilst they were very unlucky about the very moment they joined the labour market, things have turned out OK 
for now. Um, what's I think possibly more worrying is what about the next generation um, who we know have really struggled with resilience, with their mental health at school and at college, have lost out on quite a lot of education and may well be joining the labour market when um, things are looking less uh, good, uh, when there are less jobs knocking around. It's interesting because um, in your column you, you 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 talk about some of the schemes that were launched by Rishi Sunak when he was chancellor. One point nine billion pounds on the Kickstart scheme, helping uh, those aged sixteen to twenty four in universal credit sort of get. Do you think some of those schemes worked? What was or was it just that the economy bounced back for a whole host of reasons outside the government's control? No, I don't think that scheme worked very well at all. Oh. Um, there's not much evidence that it oh, did I much. Get much a bit there, Paul. Um, and, uh, um, and in fact, it didn't even manage to spend that much money. I mean, it turned out not to be ne- not to be necessary. Uh, okay. I don't blame I don't blame him for for doing that. I think everyone was quite worried at the time about what might happen to young people. But as it happened, the labour market bounced much bounced back so strongly that it wasn't necessary. And indeed, there's a National Audit Office um, report suggesting that some of that money was not terribly well spent. Uh, You can't win, win, frankly, can you? You you try to do something and then people say, well, we didn't need it, it turns out. Well, yeah, I mean, I I think, as I say, I I think it was a perfectly reasonable thing to do under the circumstances. It turned out not to be necessary. Um, Rachel, it's, it's really interesting. These sort of, I suppose, actually cuts across with what we're talking about, the health and pensions and so on. These problems stretch across governments, parliaments, prime ministers. They need long-term strategy, not necessarily tick boxes to get us through to the next 12 months. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 it's not necessarily something that the current incumbent is going to get credit for if yeah. they really reform the education and they really reform the health service. But just on Paul's column, I think it's really fascinating. And what really struck me and shocked me during the Education Commission is that we're really writing off a third of kids, a third of kids fail their GCSEs. So those who are likely to go on to university are doing fine, pretty much most of them. But there's a there's this cohort, uh, which is more than 30%, who the system's just not working for them at all. And they're ending up with no qualifications. Yeah. And the, the system really only values one form of kind of success and one form of intelligence. Uh, so you need a kind of much broader definition of success, which then also links much more closely with work. Uh, and Libby, I suppose the problem with that is if the if in a tight labour market, there's no incentive to deal with the other third, because if we're filling the jobs and everything's all right, you know, big picture, uh, the economy is doing all right. As a, you know, as a, as a society, we're writing off those people because we don't, we don't need them. Libby? There's the Chancellor trying to drag back all the over 55s um, to whatever kind of job. But it was a fascinating column. It was very dense and interesting. One of the things I was interested in is that now, these days, it's moving on between jobs, Mm. which gets people to advance. It's obviously no longer the great big corporation where you join and you're there till you're 60. Um, People have to move on. And if you're going to be a mover on, you need to be literate and numerate and you need to be flexible and willing and good humoured and because we've had in this one cohort you know the huge educational losses under lockdowns and the enormous mental stress of lockdowns and the general sense of despair and is there actually a future these kids are really going to need to grow those qualities because you need to be quite bouncy in the modern job market because when you're young you're going to be moving on between employers you're going to have to be selling yourself over and over again and I think that really needs looking at and the education system should be preparing people for that and you know attention should be paid in the universities as well to 
just trying to get those qualities into people because it's it's more necessary than it's ever been before. And actually, one um, the sort of thing that follows on from that, Paul, all this sort of work from home culture, you don't learn how to either climb the internal ladder or or jump between, you know, because I, I think you're right, the mime... Almost every pay rise I've ever had has been a result of moving to a different job or threatening to. Uh, those are the two. Those are the sort of two ways of doing it. Um, uh, uh, and actually, the skills of working out how to do all that is what you pick up in the office. And actually, there's a whole generation of young people who work from home. Yeah. They're, they're not getting those those lessons in leveraging a pay rise, Paul. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this. Um... It's definitely a change over time that moving between jobs has become more and more important over time as a way of of, of getting extra earnings and moving up the career ladder compared with where we were a decade or two ago. I think you're also right that you know, this is not necessarily the sort of thing that kids get taught or prepared for um, in the whole education system. And it's one of the things that worries me actually about the university system is that actually no one cares, frankly, sadly, um, I think very sadly, um, you know, whether you're great, you know, whether you, how good you are at history or uh, economics or, or, or whatever you're studying at university, they're testing other, they're testing other um, facets of your personality and capability and I, I think too many kids and I was certainly one of these at university just kind of thought well if I get the degree nothing else really matters well that's just not true actually the degree is really quite unimportant to the things that matter and I think things um, universities should be doing a lot more to teach that and then your third point about um, hybrid working yes I don't think we've got very good evidence on this at the moment but instinctively this really worries me that um, there are some younger people who are deciding to do quite a lot of working from home and they will be losing out on the networks and the skills and yeah. the learning that they would get in the office and that may be quite damaging in the long run. Well, it's absolutely fascinating and it's, again, it's all about being a bit less short-termist about everything. Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester then, of course, you can read them in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesredbox. Up next, I'm sorry to say, we're talking about apologies. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yes, and we are talking apologies this morning. Oh, it seems to me that sorry seems 
Yeah, this morning, Rishi Sunak has been defending his handling of the Nadim Zahawi row, with the Prime Minister stressing again his commitment to integrity and the need to follow proper process. Of course, the Prime Minister sacked his party chairman yesterday after the government's ethics adviser found he'd broken the rules seven times over his tax affairs and what he did and didn't tell people when he should have done. This was followed by the traditional exchange of letters between the Prime Minister telling him he was sacked and the departing minister. Nadim Zahawi's letter to the Prime Minister was a side of A4. It included a glowing summary of his own career, talked about arriving in the UK as a refugee, his time as vaccines minister during the pandemic, and his role in the mourning period for the late Queen as Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster. He also found time to take a pop at the press, although he singled out a headline uh, on a newspaper which only actually exists in a digital uh, edition. He complained that uh, one headline in The Independent had talked about the news tightening. He did find space to f- say sorry to his family for the press intrusion, but nothing beyond that. He was unable to say sorry. Of course I'm sorry. Thank Absolutely. you. <laughs> yes, so that was him apologising for something else entirely. Well, we've got some good news for Nadim Zahawi. If he is still thinking of apologising, today we thought we'd take a look at the art of the political apology. Why an apology is so hard to make in modern political life and why it's hard to get the public to accept it, even if you do say sorry. Uh, a bit later on, we're going to hear from Marjorie Ingle. She's a US author, runs a website called Sorry Watch. She's also written a book on how to say sorry. Unfortunately, either because of lawyers telling them not to, or because of our own brains wanting us not to be the bad guy, it is very hard to accept responsibility. And unfortunately for those who are apologising, what the listener really wants to hear is that acceptance of responsibility. Yeah, we'll hear more from Marjorie in just a bit. Uh, I also, I was really pleased to introduce to the woman who runs Sorry Watch the Nick Clegg tuition fee apology song, uh, which she she wasn't familiar with and is now a big fan of. Uh, First, let's uh, talk about the art of the political apology with a man who's seen a few in his time, uh, the Times columnist and former Conservative MP, Matthew Powis. Morning, Matthew. Morning, Matthew. (laughs) Uh, What do you make, then, of Nadeem Zahawi's decision not to apologise at all? for uh, his uh, behaviour or even just the predicament he'd put his Prime Minister in? I think it's pretty boorish. He must realise, whether he thinks the Prime Minister's decision on balance was right or wrong, he must realise that his tax affairs have caused an immense amount of of trouble. And I I think he could have said sorry for that. But he's going to claim, I, I imagine total innocence. He's going to claim that that he didn't do anything wrong. And I suppose if he is going to claim that, then saying sorry might seem to prejudice it. There is this sort of legal thing these days. Lawyers advise you not to apologise. I even heard recently about about a case of someone who'd walked off a stage um, by mistake and fallen into the orchestra pit and, and been, you know, quite badly hurt. And the management of, of the theatre could not uh, uh, even telephone him and ask him how he was in case it could might be seen as indicating guilt. He, uh, lawyers have a certain amount to answer from. Uh, um, you, uh, I know, in your column uh, in the weekend called for uh, Richard Sunak to sack uh, Nadeem Zahawi. Maybe, maybe he is listening to you. Um, do you think that he... How, how does Richie Sunak come out of this uh, episode, do you think? Does he need... You know, given that he promised integrity and responsibility on the steps number 10, we've had quite a lot of problems since. At some point, does he need to make an apology for what's happened on his watch? 
I don't think he needs to apologise, but I, th- I think he needs to learn that if, if something's going to happen and this was going to happen, uh, then you it might as well happen it quickly uh, and earlier r- r- and, and surprise people by the speed with which you've responded. Any advice that he must have got about all the rumours that had been about uh, Nadim Zahawi's tax affairs, any such advice must have caused him to to realise that this was just a slippery slope and something was going to happen at the end of it. Once he'd seen that, if he had surprised us all by the speed of his um, early response, I I think that would have been good for him. It is another thing, though, that he he has essentially inherited from Boris Johnson's (laughs) government, including Nadim Sahawi himself. Uh, No one is suggesting... That, uh, that 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 Rishi Sunak him, himself would tolerate the sort of thing of, of which Nadim Zahawi has been accused, but he's inherited Nadim Zahawi and has then, I think, been a little slow. It, it, it's actually a, a criticism of, of of his whole approach so far. He has been quite slow to distance himself completely from the administration from which he comes, and I, I think he should be quicker to do that. Uh, he's still looking too much as though the kind of trail of slime that, that Boris Johnson mm. left at the door of Downing Street, as though he's slipping up in it himself. Well, Matthew, uh, stay there, because I want to talk more apologies uh, with you in just a moment. But first, let's hear from Marjorie Ingle. She's the author of a book called Sorry, 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 The Case for Good Apologies. And she explains uh, the steps that you need to follow to deliver an effective and sincere apology. A textbook good apology has six and a half steps. It uses the word sorry or apologize. It names the thing that you did wrong. It shows that you understand why what you did was bad and hurtful. It does not offer excuses. It offers evidence of what you're doing so this won't happen again. It offers repair or reparations. And the six and a half step is to actually listen to the people who are upset (laughs) with you. Okay, and you've spent some time rating those. So is that the sort of the checklist that when you hear an apology from a person in the public eye, you're sort of there with your your checklist ticking them off? (laughs) I hope I'm not quite that judgmental. But yes, (laughs) there are six and a half steps that work, whether you're a big-time politician or or whether you're just a human being talking to another human being. Has what we expect from an apology changed? Has the, has the, the art of the apology changed over time in history? What I think is interesting in recent years is the advent of social media means that we are more exposed to bad public apologies and we have a forum for discussing bad apologies. So now all of a sudden people are way more accountable. Is there also, it sort of changed the nature of what the purpose of an apology is? Because there's sort of, there's a fear... I think particularly from businesses, they never want to say sorry because that suggests culpability. Or you get sorry if, which is a big bugbear of mine, you know, I'm sorry if you were stupid enough to be offended by that thing that I did. Exactly. Sorry if, sorry but, and sorry you. Do not go. Do not do that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. What about that idea? Does saying sorry, if, I don't know, if you're a business and all your flights are cancelled or none of your deliveries are made... Does an apology equate to culpability or is it just good a good thing in and of itself to say sorry? 
Well, as the the steps that I just told you, the third one is showing you understand why what you did was bad. And unfortunately, either because of lawyers telling them not to or because of our own brains wanting us not to be the bad guy, it is very hard to accept responsibility. And unfortunately for those who are apologizing, what the listener really wants to hear is that acceptance of responsibility. It's really interesting. It just takes the heat up. People want to feel like they've been heard. Yeah, Yeah. people want to feel heard and people want to feel like a bad thing that happened to them will have consequences and will not happen to someone else. Okay, let's get into politics then. Let's take a look at some British apologies and you can can rate them. Let's take a listen to former Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn giving his version of an apology. Let's take a listen. Our party. Can I make it clear? I and just our say pa- sorry. No, wait a minute. I and our party. No, just say sorry. Come on, let me say. Let me, can I say something? Well, our party. I want you and to say my, sorry. And our party and me. Yeah. Do not accept anti-Semitism in any form. So are you ob- sorry for obviously, anything that's happened? Obviously, I'm very sorry for everything that's happened. But I want to make this clear. I am dealing with it. I have dealt with it. So that was Jeremy Corbyn just being asked, just say sorry on ITV's this morning with Philip Schofield. You you had your head in your hands, your, your hand over your eyes oh, at one point there, Marjorie. I'm going to need a lie down after this. That was awful. That was agonising to listen to. The words obviously and already were in like his first <laughs> sentence and those do not belong in any... This wasn't an apology. We, we shouldn't even be discussing this. <laughs> it was so far from being... I think part, was... part of the issue with that is and why it got a bit antsy was he was asked repeatedly over months to apologise. Um, always had this formation and this why I think he got exasperated. Philip Scofield gets exasperated. And actually, the more you, you don't apologise, the more obvious it is that you're not remotely sorry. Right, exactly. And, you know, we have a term, apology-shaped object, which is when you sort of say something that has the vague contours of an apology, but is not an apology. That was not even close. That was some kind of amorphous, horrible thing that was happening over there. (laughs) Okay, let's move on. I suspect you're not going to like this one either, Marjorie. Uh, This is Boris Johnson being asked if he wanted to apologise for any mistakes he'd made in his first year as Prime Minister. I think, well, I, I, I certainly, I'm, I'm sorry if I don't apologise. <laughs> Put it like that way. But I, 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 there are, I, I, I think I'm, I'm uh, of course, we, uh, there are things we, we, we get wrong. And uh, we're learning the whole time. And, you know, you, you've, you've got to, you, you, you've got to learn from your mistakes as fast as possible. And, and that's, that's what we're doing. I mean, it's one of my favourites because it's I'm sorry if I don't apologise before then going on not to apologise. That initial stammer and inability to complete a sentence and huffing uh, was sort of a parody of what Americans think British people sound like. Uh, That was terrible. (laughs) Clearly, his brain was worrying, thinking about how am I not going to say anything that is accountable. Yeah, because it's seen as, in politics, I suppose it's seen as a weakness. If you say sorry, you've made a mistake, therefore you will be punished for it, Uh, which isn't always the case. It isn't always the case. Let's move on to Allegra Stratton, who worked for Boris Johnson. Uh, She was his official spokesman, was due to do press conferences from Downing Street, and then a tape emerged of her doing some practice press conferences where she joked about lockdown parties, cheese and wine evenings in number 10 where they shouldn't have been doing it. And as a result... She resigned, and this was her her public apology for the cameras. Um, the British people have made immense sacrifices in the ongoing battle against COVID-19. I now fear that my comments in the leaked video of the 20th of December last year have become a distraction in that fight. My remarks seemed to make light of the rules, rules that people were doing everything to obey. 
that was never my intention. I will regret those remarks for the rest of my days, and I offer my profound apologies to all of you at home. That feels to me like, I mean, tears obviously help, but that feels to me like a proper heartfelt apology. Or am I being oh, easily no. won over, Marjorie? No, I'm not. No. Oh, no. It didn't work for me. Maybe yours more susceptible to tears than I am, but the seemed was very problematic. She and her colleagues did not seem to be doing anything. They were <laughs> yeah. doing a bad thing. The notion of regret is more about how the apologizer feels than about how the victim feels. And the words intention, uh, intent is far less important than impact. And this should have been about the people she harmed and the impact of what she and her government did, not how she feels about it. Finally then, one, maybe you'll like this one a bit more. Uh, this was Nick Clegg. After the Lib Dems, they'd promised to scrap tuition fees, they got into government and they did something slightly different and they trebled them. So Nick Clegg decided to tackle this head-on with a piece to camera, straightforward apology. Let's see what you made of this. There's no easy way to say this. We made a pledge, we didn't stick to it, and for that I am sorry. When you've made a mistake, you should apologise. But more importantly, most important of all, you've got to learn from your mistakes. And that's what we will do. So, Marjorie, did you like that one? I loved that oh. one. Uh, that was not... Are you sure he's a politician? Well, he's not anymore. Uh, he's, now, was... he's now running Facebook, so, you know. Oh, OK, then. <laughs> uh, that makes a little more sense. Also, slightly terrifying. That was wonderful. That was great. That took responsibility. It acknowledged that it's difficult to apologise, which I think we all know to be true. But it kept the listener in mind. It wasn't about him. I'd love to play you the version where they set it to music. We made a promise before the election that we would vote against any rising fees. We would vote against any rising fees. We would vote against any rising fees. It was a pledge made with the best of intentions. The best of intentions. But we shouldn't have made a promise. We weren't absolutely sure we could deliver. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so, so sorry. Now, Marjorie, I can't help feeling you should have that as your ringtone or something. I'm putting that on our website immediately. <laughs> and um, as my kids would say, that's a banger. That's a It's bop. a good song and it'll be stuck in your yeah. head now. It'll be stuck in your head forevermore. Yeah. I mean, I suppose the only thing is that Nick Clegg issued this uh, heartfelt apology and he lost all but about a dozen of his MPs at the election that followed. So it might have come across as sincere and genuine, but it didn't help him politically very much. Yeah. Politics and being a human being are not always the same thing that's unfortunate to hear there are always second acts so maybe uh, <laughs> we'll see what happens yeah facebook doesn't work out maybe we'll come back uh, marjorie it's been yeah, terrific exactly. speaking to you thank you for guiding us through thank you so much for having the, me, art, the art of apologies oh marjorie ingot author of sorry 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 the case for good apologies and her analysis has got you all wound up loads of messages uh, somebody says nick clegg was rubbish i don't need him telling me what's what's uh, important about pol- apologizing uh, Allegra's was way better. See, that's interesting. That uh, and um, some Graham says the apology I find most irritating is saying I can only apologise, and then saying nothing more. That's not an apology. And Simon and Salford says surely there should be a YouGov poll on whether Nadim Zahawi should or should not apologise, because obviously Nadim Zahawi set up uh, YouGov, although he's not involved with them uh, anymore. Uh, right, we are going to talk more apologies next with Matthew Parrish, looking at some of his best and worst apologies in British political history.
We're talking apologies and indeed non-apologies after Nadim Zahawi uh, left uh, the Cabinet yesterday while well, he was relieved of his Cabinet post by the Prime Minister, but with no apology, apart from one to his own family. I'm still joined by Matthew Paris, uh, Times columnist, former Conservative MP. Um, Matthew, before we get into the nitty-gritty of some of the, the examples you've picked out, um, mm. what for you, we heard from Marjorie, so what she thought made, made a good or a bad apology, what for you were we looking for in an apology? I, uh, that was a fantastic interview with Marjorie, and I agree that what you're looking for is an expression of personal shame. And Nick Clegg came, I think, the closest to that. I agreed with Marjorie rather than with you uh, uh, about about um, the the, the uh, Allegra Stratton's uh, Allegra Stratton's apology. Uh, she was sorry for what happened. That was clear. But we can all be sorry for what happened. The question is, was it? my fault or not, and she didn't quite suggest that it was her fault. She suggested that, that people had not understood in some way. So I, I, don't, I don't think tears do help, actually. I think tears make one a little suspicious. So I wasn't completely uh, persuaded by <laughs> In the, in the, interest, of, in the interest of openness, I was just reading out a message from somebody that texted in. I'm, I, I was persuaded in the end by Marjorie's... Uh, I don't know. It's interesting. Once you start, actually, I think you're right. that the, If yeah. you look at the words that Allegra used uh, against the, you know, the manner in which they were delivered, you know, it is in, you know, the print versus the audio. Yeah, it is different. Yeah. But let, let's dive into uh, some examples. Jeremy Corbyn. The, the problem with Jeremy Corbyn there with the anti-Semitism thing is that he wasn't sorry and he, he damn well wasn't going to say so. Uh, and and uh, when people demand that we apologise, it isn't always the case that we should. Uh, sometimes we're just not sorry and we won't say we are. And maybe, maybe that's what um, Nadim Zahawi, you know, if he's not actually sorry, exactly. we'd probably rather he didn't apologise, uh, rather than sort of doing a, I'm sorry if anyone was, a fa-, you know, rather than yes. do, doing, a, you know, he's not sorry, so he's not apologised. Well, let's d- dive into some uh, examples uh, of where uh, we've had big politicians making big apologies and we can assess them. Tony Blair, uh, this is back in 2017, responding to the report into the Iraq war. Let's take a listen. For all of this, I express more Sorrow, regret and apology that you may ever know or can believe. I know there are those who can never forget or forgive me for the having taken this decision and who think that I took it dishonestly. As the report makes clear, there were no lies. Parliament and Cabinet were not misled and the decision was made in good faith. However, I accept that the report makes serious criticisms of the way decisions were taken. And again, I accept full responsibility for these points of criticism, even where I do not fully agree with them. What's really striking about that, uh, Matthew, is that I'm sure most people don't think he ever said sorry. No, he didn't. And I think on another occasion he simply said, I, I, I apologise for the information that was wrong. But the, the, the problem, I, I, I love that apology. It's a very interesting apology or non-apology because it's actually quite honest. Uh, in a sense, Tony Blair doesn't believe that there is any, any moral culpability. He believes that the information, the intelligence he received was wrong, but he believes that he probably acted rightly on what he thought to be the case. And there is a difference between, for instance, thinking, ha, 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 there are no weapons of mass destruction, but I'm going to use that as an excuse and, um, and launch a war, 
and and, and thinking, gosh, there are weapons of mass destruction. Um, I, I must go ahead and invade Iraq. And it was the latter that he thought. So perhaps he can apologise for being credulous, but he can't really apologise for, for being dishonest, and, and he won't. And I kind of respect that. Uh, the, the other um, trend in uh, in politics, that's clearly Tony Blair, some years after the event, apologised for something that yes. happened on his watch. The yes. other trend we've seen in politics is is politicians apologising for things which were nothing to do with them. I think Gordon Brown did it once with apologising for sending people to Australia, which was slightly before his time. This is David Cameron, and actually lots of people remember it as being one of the sort of standout moments of, of David Cameron's premiership, but apologising for the events of Bloody Sunday. Let's take a listen. There is no doubt... There is nothing equivocal. There are no ambiguities. What happened on Bloody Sunday was both unjustified and unjustifiable. It was wrong. Um, it was a very stark moment uh, when he did it. It was a, a sort of, in terms of sort of commons theatre, it was quite a moment, Matthew. But does it make any... Who is it of use to someone apologising for something which they actually had nothing to do with? Well, I think it's good to hear someone who's at the head of the British government simply admitting that that, uh, the British government or Britain uh, made a a terrible mistake and and did things that were wrong. We're often taught, as children, we were taught to take pride in the past, and so we should. We take pride in in things that our forebears did that have nothing to do with us and are not really to our own credit. But if we're to take pride for what we're proud of in the past, then we must accept shame for what we're ashamed of in the past, and David Cameron was doing that. Um, let's move on to uh, to Gordon Brown. Uh, yeah, it was, it was, well, actually, the one that I uh, was talking about, I think he, he apologised for the Child Migrants Programme, uh, which sent children for, to a better life in Australia, and then ended up, lots of them ended yeah. up uh, being treated very badly. But again, that was sort of, I suppose you're right, the, the head of the government acknowledging mistakes in the past. But actually, well, the, the, the Australian uh, government, actually, or Australia itself, had something called National Sorry, Day to the entire Aboriginal population uh, of Australia. And although it's quite easy to laugh, and it's also quite easy to say, well, it's all very well saying sorry, but why not just give them their land back? Nevertheless, uh, I'm told by Australian friends that National Sorry Day actually did carry with it some sort of resonance and some sort of feeling of, of something having been righted that was wrong. Yeah, that's interesting. No, but let's, let's, let's have a different uh, apology. This is, this is uh, Gordon Brown after he got into a pickle with Gillian Duffy. A microphone picked you up saying that was a very bigoted woman. Is that what you said? I apologise if I've said anything like that. Uh, what I think she was raising with me was uh, was an issue about uh, immigration and saying that there were too many um, uh, people from Eastern Europe in the country. And uh, I, I do apologise if I've said anything that has been hurtful and I will apologise to her personally. Someone has just handed me the tape. Let's play it and see if we can hear it. What did she say? Oh, everything. She's just a sort of bigoted woman. Wow, I'd forgotten just how dramatic that moment was when he was confronted with it live on the radio with uh, with Jeremy Vine. I apologise if I've said anything like that. Does that count as an apology, Matthew? It, it's a half apology. <laughs> uh, the, the thing is, he probably thought she was a bigoted woman. He may still think she was a bigoted woman, for, for all I know, but he realised that it was going to cause the most almighty stink, and so he came as close to apologising as I, I, I think he... He probably could, but it do- it doesn't sound completely fulsome, and that's because I think it probably wasn't completely fulsome. We mustn't make the mistake of of thinking that because we think somebody should apologise, 
they feel that they've done something wrong and, and, and therefore should apologise. Sometimes we think they should apologise. They honestly don't feel any shame and they come under pressure from people like us to express shame and they get themselves into a tangle in doing it. Uh, just finally then, um, Matthew, do you think we need more honesty uh, and apologies from our politicians? Or actually, does the absence of one tell us something about, you know, as in the Nadim Zahabi case, tell us something about them? And actually forcing everyone to apologise all the time is a is a fruitless exercise. I, I think the, the, the kind of um, contorted grammar of the non-apology apology is so obvious to everybody that it's actually quite useful when you when you hear what somebody whether somebody does or doesn't actually feel the shame that they that they should on the whole my advice to a politician would be the same as advice that was given to the the groom in a just before a wedding always apologize if it's your fault you should if it wasn't your fault it doesn't matter and i think that's probably <laughs> but you see the kind of people that just go around apologizing fulsomely all the time even when we we know they 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 they, they needn't or or shouldn't we don't like that either and politicians are no different from the rest of us your average toddler doesn't want to say sorry to his sister for sticking his finger up her nose or or whatever and and he will not say sorry and and um, the, the reluctance even of children who've only just learnt to speak to apologize i think gives us a pretty good idea of why human beings don't want to express shame and it's the expression of shame that really carries uh, conviction in an apology and we we do not wish to express shame because it affects our own standing. Well, it's only a matter of time before we find out a cabinet minister's been going around putting his finger up somebody else's <laughs> nose as well, just to add to the uh, the, the shopping list. Of which you know. Matthew, <laughs> lovely to speak to you as ever. Matthew Paris, thanks for joining us. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.